Well, we're starting to get back to somewhat normal capacity. It's great to see you all here this morning. Welcome to Twin Cities Church. My name is George. We are on our summer series of race and racism and on our sixth sermon. So we started out looking at the biblical vision for God bringing together all the nations. And then the second sermon, we saw how the church has really done a fairly poor job at that uh, throughout history, especially the last few hundred years here um, in North America. And then um, we looked at um, some of the challenges uh, present within the, 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 city, the great cities of our country because of um, just structural forces from pre-slavery and, and slavery and Reconstruction and Jim Crow that eventually affected our major cities, especially in the north. Um, and then last week we had uh, Taylor St. Clair, pastor out of Cornerstone Church from Detroit, and just talking about some of those dynamics of that he's dealing with there in the city of Detroit as a northern city that had been affected by all of those challenges over the, the decades. Uh, we also looked uh, in our third series on just the various um, theories, of, theories of justice that are informing how we look at these kinds of problems with the idea that, you know, that you know, the, the two ideas of righteousness and justice always go hand in hand. Righteousness is the state of our relationships with God and with each other in, in a place of really perfection. Uh, there's, there's harmony, there's peace, there's joy, there's human flourishing, there's prosperity. And so that's righteousness, and, and justice is the term for our efforts to restore things to a place of righteousness. And as we all know, there are a lot of different perspectives on what is righteousness, what would mean uh, perfect, perfection in terms of, of human relationships, and a lot of different perspectives on how we get there. And so today, we're going to start... Um, a couple messages on criminal justice. And so today's sermon is on crime, dehumanization, and, and the structural racism that has been present within uh, our criminal justice system. And next week, um, Justin Terrell, who is the executive director of the Minnesota Justice Research Center, uh, will be here and answering the question. I said, you know, tell us, Justin, um, what Christians can, should be concerned about as God's people who are supposed to be identified by righteousness and justice, what should we be concerned about in our system? So today, if justice is the work that we engage in to bring things to a, a state of righteousness, uh, which is increasing everybody's well-being, then it could be argued and is argued that um, America's criminal justice system isn't a criminal justice system, and a lot of people are increasingly calling it uh, the criminal legal system because it seems to be producing it seems to be producing more harm than good. Let me just go for, through a few things. Uh, in America, we have 22 percent of the world's prison population, yet we are just around four percent in terms of the global population. So we're 4% of people, but we house 22% of the world's um, prison population. We are the most incarcerated country, more than China or Russia or Iran, any country by far. 
So we're either a lot more advanced than every country, which oftentimes is how we think about things, or we're way out of step. Second, incarceration has increased for all races since, since the 60s and 70s, and that's when the high rates of incarceration began. But Hispanics are three times more likely than whites to be incarcerated, which is they, are, they represent 23% of the population but are only 16% of the overall population. Blacks are five times more likely than whites to be incarcerated. They represent... 33% of the incarcerated peoples, but they are only 12% of the whole population. Whites make up 30% of the prison population, but in the overall population, we are two-thirds. And so there are great discrepancies between the races in who make up our prison populations. Um, and even though the statistics show that um, pretty much all the races commit about the same amount of crimes as the other races. That is except in regard to violent crime, which are higher in minority populations, which is a consequence of the things we've been talking about in the last two weeks because of the uh, realities present within our major metropolitan areas. You can go back and listen to those two sermons for those things. So, it, you know, what are the reasons for this? Crime rates, poverty, contributing behavior, policing, prosecution, budgets, uh, and the clear evidence of historical and present structural racism. Um, I obviously, this is not, <laughs> I am not an expert on these things. I, I am bringing you all uh, something that I think the church needs to be aware of, and we're going to look at biblical reasons why I think that is. Um, but this is just, there's just growing bodies of work that are highlighting the challenges that we have in our country in regard to incarceration. If our goal is restoration to righteousness, this is the third issue, what the discipline or industry of, of corrections calls rehabilitation. If rehabilitation is our goal or justice is our goal, making things better, improving people, um, we're not accomplishing that. Um, one of the, there's several books um, that I'll be kind of drawing off of. Uh, one of them is, is um, The Collapse of the criminal American Criminal Justice System by William Stuntz. Um, another one is called uh, Dehumanization and Mass Incarceration, uh, The Hope of Civil Society by Dr. Anthony Bradley out of uh, King's College in New York City. And so Dr. Bradley says this, for most offenders, prison does nothing to help them personally. To the contrary, the harsh environment creates new stresses that are debilitating and accelerate the problems which led to incarceration. Prison is a place where offenders lose their humanity in ways much worse than prior to entering the system. So if things are worse off, not only for those that are in the criminal justice system, but for their, their families, their neighborhoods, the nation as a whole, the cities, then, then justice is not being done. If justice is the work of improving things, then justice is not being done, which again is why increasingly it's being called the criminal legal system rather than the criminal justice system. Now, one argument is that it, this all began with the war on drugs, and, and certainly the war on drugs uh, contributed to it, 
Um, but the data shows that the problems are actually much more complex and more structural uh, because the higher incarceration rates, the trends began before the war on drugs in the 80s. It actually began in the 60s and 70s. And we're not going to get into it. I mean, there's a ton of stuff that we could get into in all this. But the data is showing that, that it's not just the war on drugs. In fact, it's, it's a small part of it. While it is most certainly the case, this is Dr. Bradley again, while it is most certainly the case that drug crime enforcement policies disproportionately impact people of color in disadvantaged communities, it's not the case that solving for that variable will do a whole lot of change to over-criminalizing outcomes of a criminal justice system that is systemically dysfunctional. So one of the arguments about both mass incarceration and the discrimination present within the incarceration is, is the war on drugs. But uh, John Pfaff has done extensive research on this. He's got an article called The War on Drugs and Prison Growth, Limited Importance and Limited Legislation Options. And so, you know, there's, if you've read The New Jim Crow by M Michelle Alexander, a uh, very popular book over the last 15 or so years, her argument is that, that um, mass incarceration, and specifically the mass incarceration of, of black people and, and people of color and minorities, uh, is an intentional effort to continue to reproduce um, the type of oppression that existed in slavery. And so there was slavery, there was the new Jim Crow after failed reconstruction, and now it's mass incarceration. And it's basically an effort uh, by the majority culture to keep the minority culture oppressed. Um, it's true that, there, that minorities, obviously, from the stats that I read earlier, make up a very disproportionate share of those who are incarcerated. Um, but the, the argument is more complex. And so her argument, her, her, it's, it's, it's justified in bringing up some of these problems, but the, the cause, the causation isn't just this, it's not this intentional effort by the majority culture to oppress the minority culture. John Pfaff has done extensive research. Only 17% of prisoners are serving time for drug offenses. And it has led to about 22%. So in terms of the mass incarceration that's occurred since the 60s and 70s, only about 22% of the prison growth is a, is a result of the war on drugs. In fact, if all black drug offenders were released today, the black prison population would only drop by 1.4%. Really, the, the increase in mass incarceration is due to property crime and violent crime. We're not going to get into all of the, I mean, we, you know, um, what, I, what I want to look at today, what I want to look at today is what are some of the big problems that are obvious, and what are some of the ways forward, and then what are our responsibilities as a church? And so there seems to be some agreement on the major problems that lead to mass incarceration, one, right, and second, to the racial inequality present within the mass incarceration, First of all, everyone is increasingly under in, in agreement that there are simply just too many laws. If you have too many laws, there are a lot more ways to become a criminal. And so, if you, and if you want to just think about all of the laws that go into driving a car, all right, you've got 
the licensing system. You've got car registration. You've got car insurance. I mean, and those things aren't easy. I mean, we've kind of gone through the process of trying to register various vehicles with our kids at various stages of driving, and, and then we got a canoe. And I mean, just even, a, even if you get a canoe or a rowboat with the trailer, it, it, it's exhausting. And it's not hard to, be, and then I know that all of you drivers in here probably on occasion speed or gently flow through a stop sign, right? Or, or, you know, especially over the last couple of years where the computer system's been messed up, you've mailed in your registration stuff, you never got your tabs, but you got picked up for not having your, your tabs renewed. Like, well, I, I mailed it in, no, you got to have them. Anyway, it's not hard to become a criminal even in regard to our motor vehicles. And so, and that's just one example. There are so many ways that you can be a criminal in our society. And with so many laws and so many ways to become a criminal, what happens is that the rule of law is no, no longer what is governing because the correction system, the policing, then becomes a matter of discretion. Who are they going to, what are they going to stop people for? All right, if, if everybody's a criminal... <laughs> What are they going to stop people for? And so you have law enforcement increasingly under the discretion of people, not the law. So that's the second problem. Police, prosecutors, lawyers, and the courts are the ones that have the discretionary power to police and to prosecute what they want to, which overloads the system. And I can't, I, I, I can't remember the, the specifics, but we, if you just take felonies, property crime, violent crime, um, we actually prosecute about 15% of actually what they believe to, have to occur in our culture. And the system's already overloaded, all right? And so with so much crime and so many laws to offend and so much real crime that you really want to be taken care of, um, all of this law enforcement effort is discretionary, and it overloads the system. And so what happens under budget constraints, what happens is that the police and the courts and the whole system, um, police investigate and prosecute easier crimes to do those things with, crimes that are less expensive to pursue and crimes that are going to lead to more prosecutions. And so what you have is over-policing in poorer and more minority neighborhoods because the crimes are easy to observe in those contexts. And there was actually, um, you know, Minneapolis is right now in a state of being uh, very underserved in regard to police. And the neighborhoods across the entire city, whether they are wealthy neighborhoods or poor neighborhoods, are wanting more policing, my neighborhood being one of them. Um, and there was a Tribune article just a few weeks ago that just did some research and says, you know, there, we're like... Uh, two or 300 police officers down from what we need to have. Well, what's happened is um, because of the shortage, um, they pursue things that don't require a lot of manpower and time, and woman power and time. So what's happening is that the real serious crimes are not being pursued because they take more money, they take more time, they take more people. And so that's why there's been, a, one of the reasons why there's been more a greater increase in property crime and violent crime in the city of Minneapolis is because there just aren't as many police to actually intentionally go after that kind of crime. About 95% of cases 
criminal cases are settled. 95% are settled through plea agreements. Right? The idea of a jury trial almost never happens. And that's where you have people that are in the community actually deciding the guilt or the innocence of a person. But when you have 95% in the hands of the prosecutors and the lawyers, okay, those who do not have the funds to hire a good legal team to pay for the good investigations are going to get the short end of the stick. And when they have a whole uh, menu of options for what can be prosecuted, people end up agreeing to the lesser uh, crime so they don't have to do the time for the greater crime, even though they're probably innocent or oftentimes innocent of both. And so the outcome is highly dependent upon the prosecutors and the lawyers, leading to a lot of bad deals. Now, up through the 50s, mostly jury trials, um, most things were handled by jury trials made up of local people. What's happened over the last five or six, seven decades, um, and if you've read uh, Charles Murray's book, The Coming Apart of White America, um, what, what he shows is that the, the more affluent of our culture have increasingly moved away from the problem areas of our, of our cities and, and, and counties, and so you, but you still have large counties of people. So take Hennepin County. Hennepin County is one and a half million people. And the city of Minneapolis is in Hennepin County, but you have a lot of other districts um, in Hennepin County that are voting on the prosecutors, that are voting on the judges, uh, where these things are decided. Um, but, you know, the city of Minneapolis is 400,000 people, um, and that's and a good portion of the challenges within the Hennepin County uh, are in certain neighborhoods in the city of Minneapolis. Well, you have people voting for the legal system that are completely disconnected from those who are living in those challenging areas in the city of Minneapolis. And so you have, you have people that aren't, aren't familiar with the people, the conditions, what's going on. And that's Charles Murray's book, is that we, have, we are increasingly disconnected in so many parts of our life. And then he goes to show that, that the situations, not just the coming apart of white America, but that the circumstances that... that are identified primarily with poor and minority situations, um, the, the white population is just a few decades behind. And that there's, it's not just an issue of, of minority groups versus white people. It's, a, it's got a lot to do with where people are living, economic conditions, work, and the judicial systems that we all vote for. These are all very complex and integrated things. And again, I'm no expert. I would, again, I need to put a, a list of resources that I'm reading. Um, and Justin Terrell will be addressing some of these. But I, I just, so I kind of highlight some of these problems because I want to go back and look at just a handful of the Old Testament laws that God gave the nation of Israel. And I'm not advocating that we go back to Old Testament law. Okay, that's not what I'm advocating here. But you do see in the, in the administration of justice that God gave to the nation of Israel, you do see some things present within his laws that address these kinds of problems. So if you look at Exodus 20 through 23, that's the original set of laws that God gave the nation of Israel. And the, um, the, the, you know, the, old, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, the story of the foundations of the nation of Israel, they kind of, it's a story about this nation and its relationship with God and his law. And it's this back and forth process of God giving law 
some narrative that described how Israel lived under that law, and then God giving more law. And so one of the principles you, you walk away with is that um, the more laws you have, um, the more of, a, of an unjust and uncivilized society you have. And that, that's one of the things you pull away. But when God originally gave the nation its laws, there weren't that many laws. It grew because the lawlessness of the nation grew. So let's just look at um, one of the problems that we see in our system is what Dr. Bradley has called the dehumanization of those condemned as criminals. So if you commit a serious crime, and sometimes not too serious of a crime, the perpetrators are condemned to a, a perpetual life as second class or even non-citizens. Rights are taken away that they can oftentimes never get back. And Gina Evans has been working extensively over the years and has helped get some things changed in regard to employment law and voting law so that um, people that have served their time can, can come back and participate in society fully. But Dr. Bradley says this, America has declared war against criminals, and that label is assigned to a class of persons in ways that redefine the humanity of the offenders and create the context for being overly punitive. And this punitive disposition towards offenders, especially in low-income low communities, has ultimately created a permanent underclass that will only grow and continue the pattern of incarceration, cyclical drug use, low education, and underemployment. Now, if you look at God's law, and we're just going to look at theft and assault and murder. So we're going to look at Exodus chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. And I've got a lot of passages in your handout. We're not going to read through all of those, but Exodus 22, 1 through 4 is there. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall, he shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. So here's the deal. If you're caught some, stealing something, you know, and an ox or a sheep is it's a lot of property. You repay four or five times, but then you're done. You don't lose your job. You don't get put in jail for 5, 10, 20 years and then come out and not be able to vote or not be able to own a firearm or participate in other ways, not check a box. Uh, you know, do, you have a, are you, do you have a history of criminal behavior? You pay your due and you're done. You can go back with your family, go back to your job. Assault. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. There you go. Now, that's harsh. And we're going to maybe spend some time, well, anyway, we could talk a lot about that time. But I go on. When one quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, get this, this is an amazing law. 
When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Notice that that only applies to when a pregnant woman is harmed and two men are fighting. If, it's, if two men are fighting and something happens, notice there's no crime against fighting. You know, if two people decide they want to get in a fight, the, the only thing they really need to be concerned about is whether or not they're too close to a pregnant woman, which is just highlighting the importance that men need to have on women and their children. But if, if, if one or the other harms the other, they've got to pay for their lost time in terms of their work, and they've got to pay for whatever medical expenses incur. Notice that it's not stating that the repayment is for only the one that started the fight. Both are responsible for whatever harm they cause in their fight. And then they're done. No imprisonment, no greater fines. We're going to spend some time in Genesis and Exodus and the laws uh, sometime in this future, and we'll go through some of these and look at what really some deeper things that God was trying to promote in terms of the community. Murder. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And so there was capital punishment. If you, if you engaged in premeditated murder, it was a cause for the nation of Israel to take your life. However, in, in, in issues of manslaughter, where it wasn't intentional, it wasn't intentional, they had places called cities of refuge. And the, and the person and the family would move to that city of refuge. They could still work. They could still raise their family. It was an unintentional accident, right? It wasn't locking somebody up at the cost of the, to the state of thirty dollars to $40,000 a year. In New York State, it's $60,000 a year to house somebody in, in prison. $60,000 a year. In cases except murder, the perpetrator pays damages and then goes on. If he couldn't pay, see, there's another law. I think it's in your reading. If you were engaged in human trafficking, that was a capital offense. You lost your life. But slavery occurred because people couldn't pay debts if they, were, if they stole something and then got caught but then couldn't pay it back the four or five times. They had, to, they had to indenture themselves to the person that they robbed until their debt was paid off. That was the only slavery. And there were you know, military slavery and other kinds of things. But you couldn't engage in the, in the act of slavery as we understood it, of slave trafficking. The, what happened in... The, um, in, in Africa, in terms of the people that sold slaves to the British and to the, well, to the colonialists, and then engaged in human trafficking over here, um, under Old Testament law, those people would have been put to death. The second problem, so that's, that's this issue of dehumanization and the inability that people have to come back and to be full participating members of society once they've paid their, their dues. That's the first problem. And there's many. I'm just bringing up two. Second one, disconnect between those who have built and work in the system and those who are affected. This is this issue of disconnection. The, the, the police, 
the prosecutors, the lawyers, the judges, the wardens are disconnected from the people that are most affected by crime. In the city of Minneapolis, 93% of the police officers do not live in Minneapolis. In God's system, everything was local. And up until the 50s, everything was primarily local here in the States. So here's was, this was Moses' father-in-law telling him how to kind of organize the community. Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. They'll have justice. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So if, if you were guilty of a crime and somebody brought it to the judges, the initial group of judges was a group of, of ten people. Actually, your, your ten people would go to a person that knew your ten people. It was decided locally. And what, what they, you know, what, the dynamic that, that existed prior to, the, prior to the 60s and onward was, you know, you had people in neighborhoods that, that knew the people, they knew the families. And so when people committed crimes against others, oftentimes the jury knew both parties, they knew the effects of the crime upon the person, and they, knew, they would know the effects of the punishment upon the perpetrator, and there would be some sort of balanced, reasoned discussion uh, and effort to not unduly afflict either party for perpetuity. And that's really what God had in place here. So there's just, again, just two examples of where God created a legal system a justice system um, that would avoid the disconnect that is a part of so much of our problems today and avoided the dehumanization that is rampant across our system. And I know we've, we've got some folks in our, in our community that have gone through various stages of the system, whether it's just county jails um, or, or state prisons, and they, can, they will testify to the dehumanizing effects of that. So what are we to do with these things as a church? Well, I think just as a whole, uh, we all need to uh, consider what C.S. Lewis called a chronological snobbery. We have a way of moderns, and I'm sure it's been the case for every generation. We think back to the days of old, and we see how, and we make a judgment as to how archaic and terrible and, and, and ancient and, you know, we have this arrogance, and, and, and we, so we, ha we have these ideas of arrogance, we have ideas of our exceptionalism, but yet we've got massive problems that systems in history, and one of the, one of the some of the, the arguments of movements are saying, listen, we need, to, we, we need to look back to some earlier times to more just systems. So we need to, we need to be more humble in how we think of ourselves. The second thing, and this is kind of what I want to conclude on, uh, Dr. Bradley, who is a believer, he is a believer, 
he says, yeah, we need to engage in the policy and the legal work. There are some things that we need to fix that are a part of the system. It's obviously a, a necessary part. But he says, unless we as a society um, develop and work in a much more strong way, civil society institutions, institutions in our culture that lead to the, to the growth of human beings, that's a civil society institution. Insti- organizations and, and companies and institutions that, that lead to human formation, community good. He says this, this book argues that right policies can only bring about criminal justice reform if they work in concert with the other institutions in society that shape human life. The mass incarceration crisis is really a crisis of human dignity. In the criminal justice system, those who break the law are given new labels like deviant, offender, ex-con, and so on. These labels come to define the entire identity of the criminal, and he or she is treated accordingly in the system forever. Criminal justice reform will only be successful if we change it from the person up rather than simply from policy outward. What tends to be lacking in the criminal justice reform conversation is the necessary role of civil society of mediating institutions to do the work of human formation at the level of the individual human person, which public policy is ill-equipped to fulfill. So at the, at the core of his argument is that identity and community are central to alleviating these problems that we see in our, in our criminal legal system. We often think that these kinds of massive problems are beyond us. You know, we're not lawyers, we're not attorneys, we're not judges. You know, what, what can we do to solve these kinds of massive problems? But we need to recognize that there are roles that we can play. The church is one of those civil society institutions. In fact, I would argue what the Bible argues, it is the civil society institution for transforming people's sense of dignity and belonging to a new community of people. The gospel's promise is that we can have the righteousness, okay, the goodness, the perfection, the moral nature, the clear conscience, the peace of mind, we can have the righteousness of Christ when we believe in the gospel. Gives us a new identity. And then not only that, the gospel says that upon belief in Jesus Christ, upon receiving your new identity, you're also given the Holy Spirit who has washed and regenerated you and baptized you into his people. You not only are identified with Jesus Christ, you are identified with his community. One and the same, family. You're not this isolated felon set off and set apart from the rest of society. You are a member of the family of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Jesus is working to address exactly these kinds of problems. And so he calls us to action. We are to love our neighbor 
with special concern for the vulnerable. The vulnerable throughout Scripture, the orphan, the widow, the oppressed, the poor, the sojourner. And we spent a week on what it meant to be a sojourner. The, we use the term immigrant, migrant, and refugee. So the people of God, we are to, there's specific laws. Do not favor the poor, do not favor the rich. But we need to recognize that unless somebody stands up for the vulnerable, they are going to be oppressed. And so the people of God have a responsibility in obedience to Jesus Christ to take some special concern for these people. And they're oftentimes caught up in the criminal legal system. So we need to, we need to participate in some of these civil society institutions. The Man Up Club is one example. You know, it, it, um, we, we make efforts to take lead in some things. But I don't want you, we, don't, we don't want you to feel like you need to wait for permission or some official um, approval. If, if you are in a neighborhood or there's a program in your school or if you have something within your sphere that's working to shape human life, Get involved. Make an effort. The Man Up Club is one example. They are specifically trying to shape the lives of young black men so they finish high school, get a career in track, and stay out of the criminal justice system. Right? That's just one example. There are lots of other examples here in the Twin Cities that would appeal to a lot of other interests. One of the reasons why we have decentralized our ministry vision in terms of house churches is that we recognize that families and house churches are going to live in neighborhoods and places that, that we as a big organized church are not going to have much influence in or knowledge of, right? And so feel the freedom to do good works in your spheres. We're, again, we've taken some lead on some things, our relationship with the Man Up Club. Uh, Seth and I started Twin Cities Ministries 10 years ago to address this problem of recidivism. Two-thirds of the people released from state and federal corrections institutions will be back in five years. All right, So Seth has had a vision for years to create a transitional housing ministry um, to help Okay, we own or operate five houses, four for men, one for women and children. There are weekly needs that Deirdre posts where people can have an opportunity to help these people coming out of crime and substance abuse so they don't get back in. The hardest moment or the most strategic moment is when, is when people are leaving state or federal institutions uh, and they need a place to stay and they need some help getting their feet on the ground. And if and if the community that meets them when they get out is their old community, they're going to be back in. Because they've got this history, they've got this record, it's so hard to get work, it's so hard to get back in with a community that's going to be helpful. So it's a small little effort that we're engaged with. But again, there are lots of things that are probably in your spheres, whether it's schools or neighborhoods, that, that God may be calling you to. So see where you can help the vulnerable, the poor, the oppressed. The second thing, and I would say that this is the most important, we need to just be the church. We need to be the church. We are not going to be able just as individuals to help these people out. 
But we as a family can. We as house churches can. And we need to commit to loving one another and building up our strength so that we have the ability to help others. We couldn't start Twin Cities Ministries on our own. It was a combination of this church and New Life Church of Woodbury and some devoted people and devoted donors, and we got some family members to give as well and to buy our first house. And it, it's taken a, and it's a small little ministry, but it has taken a lot of people. And a lot of you have donated to it over the years and kept us afloat and provided jobs and helped dozens and dozens and dozens of people. At any given moment, we have 30 to 35 people in these homes. And over the course of the year, most of them will leave. Got jobs, starting families, get involved in churches. That's, that's the long-term work. And we may not affect the 700,000 people that are released every year. But you know what? A few dozen makes the difference in the lives of a lot of people over the course of a generation or two. And our house church efforts... Right? We're all vulnerable at some point. We're all, we all have needs at some point. And we all have the ability to meet needs. And it's only when we're in these, this family bond where we can come together and engage in that mutual effort of meeting and having our needs met. If we, if we don't do this, we will not be able to be one of these, quote, civil society institutions or the family of God that Jesus Christ has envisioned to be able to really meet these kinds of needs in this world. We're just going to be isolated. And it is very easy. Once our, if we can get our own persons stable, like, okay, we can get our sins that have crippled us, we can get those overcome. We can maybe get our family stable, get our workplaces stable. We start making some money and we build our wealth. We can become very independent. We can become very independent. And forgetting that it's Jesus and the church, it probably helped us to get to that point. And we don't really sense the need to engage or to continue to get the help. We can, we can come, become very independent. And Peter has a word for this. He says, you know what, there's a number of qualities that we need to engage in as God's people. This is 2 Peter chapter 1. And there's two of them that he points out. Brotherly affection, which means we are engaged in the lives of each other as brothers and sisters. And love. Brotherly affection and love. There's a whole other list of them too, but we don't have time for all those. Brotherly affection and love. And he says... If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever lacks these qualities, brotherly affection and love, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If we're not demonstrating brotherly affection and love, and love by definition by Jesus Christ is sacrificing yourself for the good of another. Showing interest in the others, not just your own. If you're not doing those things, you, you have forgotten the forgiveness of sins. You have forgotten that you were a prisoner to your, the scriptures call a slave of sin. Prisoners to sin. If we're not demonstrating those qualities, we have forgotten that we were prisoners in need of freedom. We have forgotten that we were enslaved and dehumanized by 
our sin, the flesh, and the devil, and the world. See, but Christ came and identified with us prisoners, all slaves and imprisoned to sin. Jesus took on the dehumanizing shame and guilt of being a criminal. Jesus was slandered, mocked, and abused. Jesus was accused wrongfully. Jesus was prosecuted illegally. He was incarcerated without cause and ultimately killed as an innocent man. He identified with us. And now he's called us to identify with him and follow him in that. That's what compels us then to the work of the gospel, to the work of the church, and to the work in this world. For it's transformation towards righteousness through the works of justice. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the justice that you have extended to us, the work that you have engaged in to bring us into a place of righteousness, righteousness in your name, righteousness as your community. God, help us, help us to take on that identity that we have in Christ. Help us, Lord God, to to devote ourselves to loving one another and to loving this world. Help us, God, to take seriously our family obligations to each other. Help us to meet each other's needs and to have the humility to have our own needs met by the church family. God, in this this season where we're coming out of, of a challenging year and a half, and as we continue to see and address and be overwhelmed by the problems in this world, God, help us to not pull back. Help us to jump in like Jesus did and to, do the, and to do the real work of justice as we can. In your son's precious name we pray, amen.